For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Now it's time to talk about climate change and national security. For that, we turn to Bill McKibben. He was one of the first to warn of the dangers of global warming, and he's written about it widely for The New Yorker, The New York Review, Rolling Stone, and The Nation, and also in many books, including The End of Nature and Oil and Honey. He's the founder of the environmental organization 350.org, and he's also a scholar-in-residence at Middlebury College and lives in Vermont. We reached him today in the Adirondacks. Bill McKibben, welcome back. Hey, what a pleasure, John. Well, you write in the new issue of The Nation that climate change is not an environmental issue. What kind of issue is it? Well, I mean, really what climate change is is a lens through which to look at the world. Uh, It's the most important thing that's going on on the planet. Not that there aren't a million more dramatic things going on every day, but the most important thing that's happening silently for the most part every day is the, the rapid transformation of the earth around us. So in the same way that, say, economic growth was the lens through which we looked at most of the 20th century and the questions that we asked were usually answered by will this make the economy bigger or not in in, in this era the single most important question we can be asking is will whatever we're doing help or hinder the efforts to keep the planet from as it were burning up and blowing away Well, The Nation has just published a special issue on national security, and you're one of the contributors. The Pentagon, of course, is one of the government institutions responsible for our security. How have they been doing with climate change? (laughs) Well, I I mean, one grades on a curve here. Uh, Compared with the rest of Washington, um, the Pentagon has at least been somewhat reality-based in its dealings with climate change for 20 years now there's been a fairly robust understanding inside the pentagon that this is a big problem that draws draws from two sources one the pentagon owns an ungodly amount of real estate as you know spread out all across the planet far too much from my point of view but uh, an awful lot of that real estate is threatened directly by uh, climate change The Navy has hundreds of installations uh, at threat from sea level rise, including some of its most important and and biggest. That's part of the answer. The other part is that, you know, as people sit down and worry about what kind of threats the planet faces, sort of traditional security terms in the next few decades, it's hard to escape the conclusion that climate change will drive them probably more than any other factor. Uh, The thing that the Pentagon worries about, I think, above all else is instability, knowing that it leads to conflict. And in this case, the instability is profound, and what it leads to, above all, is the mobilization of people. 
people fleeing rising seas, people fleeing baking droughts that lead to famine. The great example, of course, is what happened in Syria, where we had the greatest drought in the history of what we once called the Fertile Crescent in the early or in the sort of mid-aughts of this this century, and that helped set in motion the crisis that spun refugees across the planet and in the process destabilized political systems, our own included, in ways that continue up to this day. I mean, it was, uh, you know, sometime in this last week that Donald Trump was tweeting taunts at Angela Merkel about uh, uh, Germany becoming a migrant crime haven or something. Multiply this by 100, and you get a sense of what's likely to happen as the weather deteriorates in the in the decades ahead. And it's not as if this is some, in any sense, abstract notion. I mean, in the last week, studies emerged demonstrating that the rate of melting in the Antarctic has tripled uh, since 2012. That's precisely the kind of trend that a lot of us had worried about for a long time, and it demonstrates just how fast this crisis is deepening. You say that success for the climate change movement will not mean stopping global warming. That sounds ominous. How do you define success for the climate movement? Well, at this point, I fear it's too late for stopping global warming to be on the list of menu options. And that's a hard thing, of course, for those of us who've been working on this a very long time to say. I mean, we should note in passing that it was 30 years ago almost to the day, June 23, 1988, when Jim Hansen, NASA scientist, stood up in Congress and announced that climate change was underway, really sounding the starter's pistol for what should have been the all-out race to do something about the greatest problem we've ever come up against. Uh, Obviously, we haven't taken it on with the urgency it demanded, and so at this point, we're playing not for stopping global warming, but for limiting it to the point where civilizations as we know them can deal with it. And again, there's no guarantee that that remains possible. Uh, The damage that we've allowed so far is tremendous. There was a study in the last couple of days predicting that in the United States alone, chronic flooding by the later part of the century as sea levels rise will inundate an area of infrastructure larger than the number of buildings and houses in Houston and Los Angeles combined. Wow. Um, and of course, the U.S. Is, will, you know, will, will fare better than an awful lot of other countries around the world as the oceans rise. That's what we're playing for now, trying to limit things to the point where uh, the people who come after us can, can have some hope of dealing with them. And that'll take enormous nimbleness from here on in. So we need action on, on many fronts. What's number one on your list? You want number one, two, and three, maybe? Yeah. Uh, Here's the action plan at the moment. One, rapid, rapid conversion to 100% renewable energy, something that's now possible because the engineers have done their job so well and dropped the price of renewable energy so far. Last week, Nevada set the new U.S. record with a big new solar plant coming in at about $0.02 a kilowatt hour, Uh a, a truly unheard of price for electricity. Second thing is we have to keep in the ground fossil fuels, wherever they are. And the third thing is, and this is something that everybody can work on, whether they live near a coal mine or a pipeline or not, 
we have to break the power of the fossil fuel industry by cutting the flow of money their direction. That's why the good news about this widespread divestment campaign is one of the things that, that gives me hope. We're closing in now on $7 trillion worth of endowments and portfolios that have decided to divest in part or in whole from fossil fuel. And that's taking its toll. You know, the fossil fuel industry is now dramatically underperforming the rest of the economy. And it has enormous political clout, but it's on borrowed time. Our job is to make that time as short as absolutely possible. You listed keeping fossil fuels in the ground as uh, one of the top three. Maybe we should say a word about fracking at this point. Yeah, well, fracking is one of the things that, uh, one of the ways of getting more fossil fuel out of the ground that is spread widely around the world, beginning in the States uh, over the last two decades. And, of course, it's an enormous problem. The methane that's leaking out of these fracking wells and things is, is adding to the burden that carbon puts in the, in the atmosphere. That's why it's so important. That's why so many people, for instance, are demanding that, that leaders like Jerry Brown, the governor of California, who've done great work on the demand side of the climate equation, also take up the supply side and stop. Uh, granting new permits for oil wells in California. Uh, the world will be converging on California in September for uh, the Global Climate Action Summit that Brown has called. And the gesture we need from him in part of that is to make it clear that California is ready to begin the kind of phase out of the fossil fuel production industry. That would be a huge step. There's a problem with the news about climate change every day. As you say, it's the biggest news on the planet, but it's hardly ever in the headlines. Why Why is that? <laughs> well, because no day is it the single most dramatic thing. I mean, how could it be in the headline, really, uh, you know, given all else that's going on this week? I just, I, I, I spent a little while going through uh, all the op-ed pieces in the New York Times for the first, uh, through the beginning of June this year, so about 660 or so pieces, and of those Six had dealt more, you know, in part or in whole with climate change. Uh, And and one of those was simply to uh, ball out me and Naomi Klein for uh, not understanding that that somehow it would all be taken care of uh, because of, uh, I don't know, the wonderful free hand, the invisible hand or something. One percent of, you know, the attention of the world's intellectual space on climate change is clearly not enough. But I have no idea, you know, what I would have done differently if I was running the op-ed page of the Times. I mean, what are you going to do? Not cover the Me Too moment? Not cover people, people's children being taken away from them by the federal government? I, you know, we live in a moment of enormous drama, and climate change is moves at slightly too slow a scale. And, you know, it's moving at an enormously fast scale in kind of geological terms uh, at slightly too slow a scale for the news cycle for the most part. But that's why it's you know important that we keep talking about it whenever we can. And the good news is that it's making a dent. There was a poll last week showing that among progressives in this country, it's now the third most important voting issue. That should be a reminder to our political leaders on the left anyway that the time has come to really talk about it all the time, to make it along with inequality, along with uh, racism and gender inequality, be 
kind of fourth crucial issue that progressives talk about constantly. And who among our political leaders is doing the best to give climate change the attention it deserves? Well, I got to say, Bernie did a great job, uh, has been doing a great job all along, even though it's clearly not his thing that, you know, moves his heart the most. Um, That would be economic inequality, as everyone knows. But during the first, you know, set of presidential debates, when they said, what's the biggest problem facing the world? Without skipping a beat and without appearing to think about it at all, he said, well, obviously climate change, which Mm. obviously Mm. is true. And that was a very, that was a kind of important moment, I think. Uh, uh, There hasn't been one quite like it before in in U.S. political history. Uh, So now the job is to bring a lot of other people to the same place where they're making it a a priority issue, because it has to be a priority issue if we're going to do the things that need to be done to get it tackled. And, and I hope that just as the rest of the Democratic Party has started to follow him on things like health care for all and a $15 minimum wage, uh, they'll be following him on keep it in the ground and 100% renewable. Last question. Trump has done many terrible things on climate. What do you think is the worst thing he's done? Well, you're right. The list is extraordinarily long. I think the thing that history will judge him most harshly for in climate and in some ways maybe the most far-reaching of all his efforts so far was to withdraw the U.S. from the Paris Climate Accords. Not because those were such great accords. Uh, they're at the best a beginning of dealing with this problem. But the fact that the country on the planet that has produced the most carbon altered the atmosphere and hence the temperature most dramatically is also the only country, literally the only country out of 190-some nations on Earth that refuses to join in the international effort to do anything about it. That is a, um, well, that should should shame us all. There's a lot of things that should shame us all, um, um, but that's high on the list. Bill McKibben, he wrote about catastrophic climate change for the special issue of The Nation on National Security. Read it at thenation.com. Bill, thanks for everything you do, and thanks for talking well, with us today. Back at you, John, and it's always a great pleasure to get to talk and to get to listen to your great work. Okay, thank you very much. You've been listening to Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine. You can hear more interviews like this one at thenation.com, And you can subscribe to Start Making Sense at iTunes Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.